Kia welcome to the panel, RNZ National, Verity Johnson uh, and Connor English today. Now, uh, State Highway 16, Northwest Motorway, St Luke's eastbound off-ramp and on-ramp on SH16 now closed due to a crash on Great North Road. Do expect delays, consider using another route and we will update you. And speaking of roads and closure, well, great news about State Highway 25, isn't it? Coromandel businesses thrilled uh, 25A opening pre-Christmas. The vital link to the region has been closed by a massive slip since January, reopening well ahead of schedule. And what about the Brinderwins in Northland? Another vital route closed on and off and on and off earlier this year, providing an essential link to what has been the fastest growing region in the country in the last 10 years. Waka Kotahi right now is considering advice that could see State Highway 1 over the Brinderwins in Northland closed completely for two months early next year for further recovery and rebuild work. With us is Darren Fisher, the CEO of the Northland Chamber of Commerce. Darren, kia ora. Nice to have you on the programme. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. Well, after the year you've had, perhaps not, the sort of advice you'd be hoping for, Darren? No, no, it's not. But, um, look, I really do uh, sympathise with the decision-makers at, at Wakakotahi because mm. it, is a, it is a big decision, and I'm sure that if we were cut off for a long period of time, say a year or something after a major event, that that would be also hard to take. It's, it's, it's not an easy decision, but also it's a complex piece of road, isn't it, the Brindewins? It's a, a lot of traffic goes through there, uh, complicated by weather factors and other mitigating issues. Absolutely, and, and I guess no better opportunity to start off with a really great piece of news for Northland if you're the incoming government and, and provide us with those much-needed four lanes from Auckland to Whangarei. There's a little plug for you, Darren, <laughs> and, your, and your constituents listing there. Let's hope some MPs are, uh, are listing there. Tell me something before we go to our panel, Darren. Um, the effect that closures have had on the region, I read there was a report listing it up to $1.94 million a day. Has the effect been quite profound on your local businesses in the Northland area? Yeah, absolutely it has. And, and um, I guess what we're seeing is a lot of business fatigue. And I guess so those business owners have been through uh, COVID and then a really tumultuous uh, financial um, rate rises and, and cyclones and, and then an election where everyone just you know, puts spending on hold. So our businesses are really fatigued and this, this is not helping. So I think if there's any opportunity that the closure is still being considered. I think the timing is probably the thing that our that our business community would really love to um, be consulted on. Okay, yep, so consultation. Imagine that, Verity, that mm. your little your little business that you have, your little burlesque club, mm. is actually located in the Whangarei, and oh dear, uh, looking at possible closures, you know you've got people uh, coming up from Auckland to go to it. Yeah. It would be a headache. It's, uh, it's, it's such a headache. And Darren, I feel for you when you say this because I understand the massive impact that like being able to access something geographically over summer. People travel over summer. People spend over summer. This is where all the small businesses that you're representing and fighting for will be making their money. So mm. this is this is the time. Um, like I look, this is something that you know I've been feeling a lot. Like just with the CBD and the, uh, the small business in the CBD in Auckland, there's a lot of uh, fatigue in our community as well because it's just been such a 
such an awful three years. Um, are you hopeful for the mood of the businesses in Northland? Yeah, I guess you know where we move to now. Should this decision uh, progress and and you know the timing that has been proposed goes through, I guess all I, all I can say on behalf of our businesses is yes, there's diversion roads in place, but they're actually quite lovely to drive if you just take your time, enjoy the scenery, stop for a coffee in beautiful places like Mangawai or, or the Kerry Museum. Northland is still open for business, and all of the beauty that was here now is will still be here, just despite you have to go around the Brindulans. Well, that's a nice piece of advice, actually. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, Darren, I've um, been meaning for years to go to that Cody Museum, uh, and every time I go past, I say to my wife, I must stop there. <laughs> and we, <laughs> I think we're going to Northland this summer, so I will stop there this time, and I'll let you know, Darren. Uh, Connor, let's bring you in. Uh, yeah, well, look, I think every uh, community wants to be connected, whether it's through roads or the electricity or their, you know, their uh, telephones. And if you're not, um, it does create a big problem, doesn't it? Um, not only for the businesses, but but for the community there. We we want to be linked, um, and it just stresses, it highlights, I guess, how important it is to be able to have vehicles coming and going. And and I think the point you make, Variety, about the um, what's happened in some of the um, roadworks in the city has had a, a not dissimilar impact on urban businesses as oh, well, yeah. where yeah. vehicles have been um, not able to connect into the business uh, businesses that are operating there and customers haven't been able to come to it. So um, I just hope that they get the road fixed as soon as they can because it's um, yeah vital to every community, isn't it? Yeah. Darren, uh, one resident said, I'm quoting here, Northland can't hold its breath every time it rains. Does there need to be some sort of longer-term fix at play? And in your opinion, or the opinion of the people that you represent, what might that look like? Yeah, absolutely is, is, is the answer to that. And I think, you know, as I started with my plug for four lanes from, from Auckland to Whangarei, and um, you know, that's already part of that work's been done. It's a beautiful piece of road that you drive on that gets you all the way to Auckland. Um, we'd just love to see that work be continued uh, and do the last half of it. That's, that's really the, the outcome that um, Northland's looking for. And that really unlocks so much potential up here in the north is is that our um, GDP per you know, capita ratio is one of the lowest in the country. And we, can, we can't afford to keep wearing the costs of road closures in our communities over and over and over again. So that's what people mean by holding their breath every time. It really right. hurts the pocket of every community up here in the north. The other issue that uh, I want to raise too regarding this um, uh, volatility of pipeline regarding if, if you like regarding the Bredouins and actually uh, just maintaining this, this sustainability of route um, many listening might not be aware actually that Northland is the fastest growing Place in the country over the last 10, 10 years. The growth in Northland is quite extraordinary, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's sort of not reflected in the investment that we've had in infrastructure. Right. I think that's the part that people ah. um, are really struggling with now. Finally, Darren, uh, is there a case to be made for a second option into Northland? Whenever we talk about this, um, people bring up the issue of bolstering freight and passenger rail. What of that for you? Yeah, Northport's been proposed now um, to, to solve a part of that issue for us, and I think 
that has got to be a big part of the consideration. You know, getting some of those um, major freight lines off our roads just adds sustainability and longevity to whatever investment is made. I think it's pivotal that any any infrastructure around our roads goes hand in hand with um, our growing population and our freight options as well. You did right. Good on you, Darren. As Darren Fisher there, the CEO of the Northland Chamber of Commerce. Anybody spent too much time? Have you, I mean, you're a Southlander, kind of, have you spent any time at all yep. in the north? Yeah, yeah. We uh, did a camper van trip. Uh, we spent a week nice. going up from Auckland up one side, up the right side and down the left side. And, and it was just a fantastic part of New Zealand that Magic I hadn't spent much time in at all. But it's a brilliant place up there. Magic, what about you, Verity? Yeah, I have, but um, I have only done gigs and pubs, so I've seen oh. it from like 6pm till 2am, which I feel is, like, what I will say, though, is that the people are amazing. Like, you do a gig in Northland, it goes off. Does it? Yeah. Like, it makes Auckland look emotionally <laughs> repressed in comparison. We look at, like, it's just, <laughs> yeah, the, the, higher, the, high, the higher up the top you go and the lower down south you go, that's where you get the is really magic. Did you, yeah. hear that? Did you hear that, Connor? Yeah. yeah. I'm raising the bar, Connor. I expect yeah. great things. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you enjoy you enjoy a, a night out of the burlesque or whatever it may yeah, be. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good on you. Um, now, I, and have you have you been to the Cody Museum? I have not. I'd love to hear about it. Two one zero one, and I am going to go. In fact, I might get them on on the panel. Uh, what's there? What is it? Sixteen past. Well, here's one for you, kind of, before we move on. Regarding the gaming sector, a local mm. development company called Grinding Gear Games have a massive following internationally for their game Path of Exile. I've heard of that. Um, they even had a convention in Auckland uh, this year which had a massive turnout. Streamers from around the world flew in for it. Millions online watched. Did, did the New Zealand media talk about it? Nope. Hmm. Yeah. I've, we just, there's just no recognition publicly that gaming is even a thing that it even makes money. Like, if you talk about gaming, most people would be like, oh, that's what my mm. boyfriend does when he's stoned. Like, that's not a thing. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, interesting. interesting uh, Wallace, I was in Riyadh recently, and over there they had uh, two and a half million people coming through the gates for an esport event over there that there was $70 million in prize money. So, what? globally, it's really what? building did, did momentum. You say $70 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the Olympic movement are looking at, uh, you know, incorporating esports into into their traditional, um, you know, Olympic events. And Good lord! Yeah, so it's a lot of lot of things happening on that front. It certainly dwarfs the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar New Zealand Cup, uh, which we are going to be talking about at the end of the show. Eighteen pass for the panel: Verity Johnson and Connor English. And to this, what sort of protections do you have when your employer goes bust? Get called into a nine a.m. meeting suddenly. All over Rover. This was highlighted last month when online independent supermarket Soupy suddenly went belly up with 120 employees being told they would not be paid for the last two weeks they worked nor get any of the owed annual leave. A generous donor in this instance kindly stepped in. That's rare. Soupy certainly wasn't the first, won't be the last. So what can be done to protect staff addressed in a very interesting article in the conversation by Associate Professor in Commercial Law at Teheranga Waka uh, Victoria University, Wellington, Trish Keeper. Trish, kia ora. Good to have you here. Uh, kia ora, Wolf. Uh, so you break it down a bit, don't you, in this article. So once I was reading, once a liquidator sells the company's remaining assets, you say the Companies Act then 
sets the order in which the debts are to be paid. Can you explain that a bit for our listeners? Well, when a company goes into liquidation, there will be some assets, maybe most of the assets, will be covered by security interest to your secured creditors. So the happening of the liquidation will be an event which triggers their right to seize and sell those assets. So the liquidator gets appointed, and really what they have to deal with is what's left. Any assets that are left, um, any claims, anything that can be clawed, clawed back. And then, so it gets together some money, pot of money, and then pays out um, in an order of priority according to the Companies Act. And obviously this only applies to corporate employers. Yes. Um, so, and this is in the seventh schedule to the Companies Act. And so the liquidator is directed to say who gets paid first, um, who gets paid second, third, and so on. And basically the way that there's kind of two types of creditors. They're all unsecured, but... Some get classified as preferential or priority creditors, right. and the rest are just unsecured. Now, so within that list of priority preferential creditors, number one is the liquidator and the cost of the liquidation, the fees, the disbursement, any employees who are employed by the liquidator. Once they are paid, then money will go to employees' claims. So unpaid wages for four months prior to employment, uh, prior to the liquidation, um, any unpaid holiday pay, other disbursements, etc. Now there's a cap of twenty five thousand odd per employee. Oh, is there on that? Yep. Um, and basically, if you're owed more than that, then you claim as an unsecured creditor, not a for the rest. But generally. Um, if a company's an insolvent liquidation, it hasn't had enough money to pay all its debts anyway. So, yeah. and then you've got to pay the liquidator's fees on top. It's, it's, that's why often why your unsecured creditors, you know, your suppliers, your trade creditors, if you don't have a security, don't get paid at all or get paid very little. Oh, good to explain it, uh, Trish. That's interesting. Well, let's go around the panel on this because, uh, Connor, it's certainly uh, not the first uh, and, and it will not be the last day this happens. Have you got a question or a comment? Uh, well, I mean, it's just a it's just a reality, isn't it, of 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 an economy that you're going to get businesses that don't survive uh, for whatever reason, and sometimes it's through bad management, and sometimes it's just through um, circumstances beyond their control, like a road closing or or COVID or something like that. Yeah. So you do feel for the staff uh, in that. But one of the questions I, I would have is. Um, it just strikes me from what you read in the newspaper anyway that the cost of liquidators can be quite high. They do seem to consume a lot of any available cash. Uh, is our uh, cost structure here for liquidation, uh, is it high or low? Or, um, you know, because as you say, they get first dibs and then what's left is goes to the employees. Uh, how, how do we stand on that? Um, well, I mean, that's a, a, an, another issue. Um, I mean, if you're appointed or liquidated by the High Court, so you know companies can go into voluntary liquidation or they can have a liquidator appointed by the High Court. Uh, often the High Court will fix the amount of the liquidated fees, so right. like the hourly rate. Right. But then it also can include things like legal advice. Um, say you want to bring an action against directors for reckless trading. So those kind of fees as mm. well. Yeah. So you know, and that can be very expensive. So. You know, it is horses for courses, I think, um, and 
We now have a licensed insolvency practitioner profession, so they are regulated. Um, if you have a voluntary liquidation, it's probably not so much. Uh, there's more options available, but generally, if you have um, an involuntary and insolvent liquidation, you get a licensed insolvency practitioner appointed. They're regulated, and you know, so there are rules around it. Okay. Verity, whether it's high or low, um, yeah. So it it, it does. It depends. Beauty. Trish, this is this is fascinating. I feel like I'm getting an entire university lecture in a minute. Um, look, oh, I, sorry. No, it's no, amazing. No, it's Never apologise. No. Oh my god, I feel like he made me noticeably smarter. Um, I look in your article. You talked about how in Australia and the UK they have a scheme where the government effects, effectively has a national fund. That means that if you go bust yeah. as a business, the government's going to it's got your back. It'll pay out your employees. Why doesn't this system exist in New Zealand? And also, second question: Why was the system that the previous government suggested actually based on employee and employer contributions, not a national fund? Ah, uh, well, two questions. So yeah. the Australian-UK fund is, is like a guarantee, a state guarantee. So the preference system, which we have, still exists. But basically, if your employer can't, if there's not enough money, mm. the fund pays out. And then the fund then stands in the shoes of the employer basically as the employee. And there's, a, like, Australia, it's 13 weeks. And, mm. you know, the advantage of unpaid salary, the advantage is you get the money straight away or you make it, you know, it's quite quick turnaround. Um, as to your second question, um, I think the, the proposed uh, social insurance was, I think it was a national fund, a national-wide fund, wasn't it? The proposal on the... As I understand, I yeah. Previous, previous government, I'm not quite sure, the almost previous government. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I think it was more like they were suggesting that um, small business owners would pay like contributions to it and yeah. employees would pay contributions, kind of like how KiwiSaver works like yeah. there. Um, yeah. But I was just curious, does that mean that we don't have the government backing us here? And if we didn't, we just said we don't have anything. And if we did introduce it, it would actually be the small businesses carrying that cost. Uh, well, it would be all employers, I would think, um, not just small businesses. So um, I mean, we... I think they were talking of a levy of similar to ACC of, of one one point somewhere between one and two percent. So, Trish, just explain to me because it's interesting how we fare, isn't it, uh, compared to other countries? And you do address this. Say, Supi failed. Supi was in Australia, and Supi failed in Australia. What might yep. the difference be? Well, in Australia, you're an employee, and, and you have to be an Australian citizen, but you would be entitled, um, once you get confirmation from the liquidator, that these are employees that have been basically made redundant and are owed fund, you know, owed salary, so you need to get this kind of written confirmation. They can get up to a 13-week salary um, and other other entitlements like unpaid holiday pay, redundancy pay. So you, you do get this kind of state guarantee of unpaid amount. Wow. And, you know, I, I, and Connor's comment about it's perhaps the cost of doing business, I think the thing about employees is that they're unable to kind of, um, in the sense, you know, that's their only source of income. Mm. And that's why some, a lot of people believe that they have a right to a better treatment than just other unsecured creditors who are mm. able to mitigate and that's the key, um, issue, you know, key issue, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, Trish, kia ora. So, it's, mm, keep going. 
No, that's all. Yeah, that's no, really. It's a great explainer. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've really sort of laid it out, as Verity said for us. So I really appreciate your time on the panel, Trish. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, associate professor in commercial law, giving us the the breakdown, really, eh, on yeah. uh, uh, on what happens uh, using Supi as an example. There, it is twenty seven past four on the panel on RNZ National. Now, I wanted to go back to this issue of, I mean, different topic here now, eating sheep brains. As a child, because why? Can you hear that collective exhale of disgust? (laughs) (laughs) God, why? Have you been eating sheep's brains, Wallace? No, but but see, Sally Wenley, in her I've been thinking, bought in her granny's cookbook. Oh my god! Filled with delight, such as little brain pies. And you all collectively got in touch with me. Oh, did you what? Here's one, for example. Diane says, yes, I've eaten brains as a child. Unbeknown to us children, my mother cooked sheep's brains um, fritters from lunch. She revealed to us later that they were McGill's, our much-loved pet sheep. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Do you that was Sky for life. You'd never be able to have a pet again. <laughs> Listen to you. Well, with us now is Annie. Welcome to the show, Annie. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> it's lovely to have you on. All right. So what was your memory? My memory is my mother poaching sheep's brains that would have come from the butcher shop. She just put a little water in the pot and they would gently poach very, for a very short time and then they were mashed, a little salt and pepper and then the bread was, the wholemeal bread was lightly buttered and they would just put on the bread and we ate them. Never a question, you eat what your mother puts in front of you. Well, if Verity was growing up then, she wouldn't have eaten it. She's almost gay. In fact, you're almost crying. You're almost crying with horror, aren't you, Verity? Yes. Let's bring you in. You can't believe what you're hearing. I just, I think I'm going to be sick on air. (laughs) Radio New Zealand projectile vomiting. Oh, my God. That sounds horrific. Particularly what gets me, Connor, is the little poaching. The little brain is steaming away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it's better than raw, isn't it? Well, yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> bright aside, kind of bright aside. Uh, what? What? What made? You, I mean, what were they like, Annie? And was it a common thing? I don't know how common it was. Probably in rural areas. I imagine most of the animal was eaten. Mm. Um, and we, again, as I said, we just didn't question what was put in front of us. That's what you ate, and it was part of our lives, and that was it. Yes, yes. I understand that in the late seventies, you tried to buy brains, but you couldn't. That's right, and we were travelling through France and went to a rural market and here were these inflated pink things hanging from a stall and I thought, oh, that's a bit odd. Got into conversation with the um, with the, the salesman and it turned out they were, this, please hold your breath, people, they were inflated sheep's lungs. And they also sold sheep's brains, which I learned later. Most of our, those ex, those products were exported to France because that's where they were popular. So I said to the chap, how do you cook sheep's lungs? And he said, you just slice it and fry it gently in butter and eat them. I must say I have not tried them. 
You're giving the nation collective joy or horrors, Annie. As you've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for the memories. Thank you. There you go. You just can't stand it, can you, Verity? Look at you. <gasps> I think I'm going to cry. Oh, my God. I think there's a lot of cultures that do use utilise more of the animal than, than we traditionally have, I guess, isn't it? Well, I was thinking about you, kind of. I mean, here you are on the farm. I mean, it's called nose to tail, isn't it, really? Uh, it's <laughs> Well, we used to eat, you know, the liver and the kidney, but we never quite got to the to the brain. But uh, that would be a delicacy, I guess, for some yes, people. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Claudia says, I'm 69. I love sheep's brains. My mum would cook in a batter as a kid. Lovely texture. Um, James and Henderson says, you can t- get... T- Please, if you make me vomit on air, I'm never going <laughs> to so come back on this program. Just the feedback. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. How bad is it? Um, no, you, you, you can get take away sheep's brains and half a skull in Iceland. <laughs> it's very normal. Yeah, you're on the panel, RNZ Nash.